neon, known for being lights, famous for being bright. Nobody thinks much about it, so let's have some fun. Let's find out why neon is secretly incredibly fascinating. Hey there, folks. Welcome to a whole new podcast episode, a podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm not alone because I'm joined by my co-host, Katie Golden. Katie, what is your relationship to or opinion of neon? Well, uh, you know, it's tubes full of light. It's probably fairies. That's, you know, probably little fairies in there. You trap them, you shove them in a tube and you shake it up and the fairies get agitated and they give off light. This whole episode is going to be a guide to fairy capture. Basically, if you want to be the villain in a movie about Tinkerbell, this is how. Like, I'm just saying that Tinkerbell, if she wants to earn her keep, she's got to light up some signs for me. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I I find uh, neon lights to be beautiful. I like them. Um, I remember I played a game when I was very young, and in the game it was actually called Spelunks. So any Spelunks heads out there, shout out to you! And like in the game, it was sort of like an exploratory game for for young kids, I guess. And there was a part where you could like put different elements inside of a glass tube and it would shine different colors. And I found that really interesting as a kid and then just did not follow up on that or learn more about that. And so now (laughs) as an adult, I'm really interested to learn more about neon. Cool. It almost sounds like the game trained you to do the role in life we were joking about. Uh, So that's great. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. It's good you chose not to pursue it. You went on the good path. Uh, Yeah. Fairies are free. My fairies are free. I am not someone who goes around putting fairies in tubes. That's a lie. (laughs) Yeah. And I did not have very much relationship to this topic either way. Because also, thank you to Donna, supporter of this show, friend of the show, artist, especially on our Discord. She suggested Neon and. The resulting episode here is kind of two episodes. We'll do the chemical element neon. It's on the periodic table. And then we'll do the signage and the lights and stuff. And both are amazing. And the lights have something to do with the element, right? Or is that a red herring? It's real. The The first ones were full of it. And then we'll talk later about how it's somewhat been replaced. But the first yeah. ones were full of it. That's not a made up thing. I assume all light now is LED. I think all lights are LED, and I'm I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. We did we did a batteries episode recently, which was kind of the first first one about an element, especially the element lithium. And so, yeah, I'm very I'm very into that futuristic, uh, just displays and diodes kind of thing that has somewhat replaced neon. It's very on my mind. We're working our way through the periodic table. We're gonna have a gallium episode, and I'm pumped for that. <laughs> I'm lying. We're not having a gallium episode. But if you want one, maybe we will. I don't know. Buddy, there is a gallium story coming today. This oh, my episode. God. I'm so excited. <laughs> That's I'm <It's> weird. <laughs> can we just acknowledge what a genius I am at saying words and having those words also happen in the future? That's part of the show. It's great. <laughs> I love it. Every episode, our first fascinating thing about the topic is a quick set of fascinating numbers and statistics. And this week, that's in a segment called... Number crunching in the dead of night. Take these stats and facts you can't deny. All your life, you were only waiting for these numbers to arrive. Yay. I was kind of doing a guitar thing and then I like, but then I got too into the melody and then I just, I feel like I turned into a bird or something. Folks, I gave Katie the much more challenging task there. I like, I told her, I'm probably going to cut that part out, but I told her like, okay, and do the guitar thing. And she just needed to do a guitar thing while I had the very easy, straightforward lyrics of the song. 
before we started recording, he's like, do a guitar thing, but like, you know, coming out of your mouth. And it's like, okay, just, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's easy enough. Yeah, me and my normal phrasings of right. saying the concept of singing. Yeah, you know. Just do it as if you're barfing out a little guitar. Thanks, Alex. Great stage direction. <laughs> and thank you so much, M the Jackalope on the Discord. M, wonderful suggestion. We have a new name for this every week. Please make them as silly and wacky and bad as possible. Submit through Discord or to sifpod at gmail.com. And very first number here is 10. Because neon is number 10 on the periodic table. That means it has 10 protons. Show off. Why does it need all those protons, huh? It is. It's relatively heavy for being an extremely common element in the universe. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want a proton shame, but it's a good amount of protons, isn't it? And the more protons you have, right? Like the weaker the atomic forces are. I think I remember like the larger the atom the more unstable it is, like the easier it is for those bonds to kind of break or for electrons to kind of fall off. Yeah, normally, yes. And then neon is called a noble gas or an inert gas. So it's set of electrons. Oh, it's a noble gas. <laughs> Why didn't you say so? I would have set out the croque-monsieurs. <laughs> Look, listen, England, if you didn't have so many nobles, we wouldn't be doing funny British voices, okay? It's yeah. on you. It's your. It's you and your king's fault. Talk about noble gas, all right, King Charles, but it's stinky in there. <laughs> After dinner at Buckingham Palace, right? <laughs> anyway. Because uh, <laughs> the, the next number here, much more specific, it is 0.0018%. Yeah, of course. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, another way to say that is 18 parts per million. I'm sure everybody was saying that at home. 18 oh, parts per million. 18 parts per million, yes. That is how much of the air is neon. Mm. Like the air around us on Earth is a tiny but substantial amount of neon. So how much air I got to breathe to huff some neon? Uh, a lot, yeah. But, <laughs> but also any amount, because it's just there. And right. that brings us to an immediate takeaway number one. You are breathing in neon right now. What? Right now? Yeah. Both of us. Everybody listening. Wait, what about now? Yep. Right now. Also Still now? now? Yep. Mm -hmm. Still now. Okay. Wow. That's so, okay. So it's <laughs> it's just a, a, around there and I could be breathing it in right now. Yeah. It's one of the parts of air. It's not one of the main parts. It turns out what we call air is a mixture of 78% nitrogen and 21% oxygen. So 99% of it is nitrogen and oxygen. But then there's a few other gases, in particular argon, which is another noble gas, and then carbon dioxide, hydrogen, water vapor, and our topic this week, neon, are, are the yeah. main other things in air. I know about Argon. He, like, defeated Sauron and helped Frodo out. Good guy. <laughs> yeah, but air is, like, air isn't just nothingness. It is, like, an atomic soup full of elements, uh, some yeah. more voluminous than others. Like, we've got a lot of oxygen, which is good because we need that. A lot of nitrogen and oxygen. There's all sorts of little guys in there, just like a stew, like an air stew. Air is almost an ultimate SIF topic. Like, we're just breathing it always. In general, most of us are just dealing with regular air all of the time. If you're in some sort of submarine or spaceship, maybe it's a different <laughs> composition. But, uh, right. you know, it's just kind of going on. It is truly SIF, the air around so, us. Sort of the original recipe air, original flavor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's got it's got a little bit of neon in there. So that's that's pretty neat. Can it hurt us? Are we fine? Is it okay to keep breathing? Yeah, it turns out, yes. It's just fine that neon, a gas that we think of as like colored tube lighting gas, is also just something we're breathing. It's fine. Okay, that's good. I was holding my breath the whole time because I was worried that if I was breathing in neon, uh, <laughs> even while I was talking that whole time, holding my breath. Um, so what if I what if I cut to an ad for the antidote to neon or some kind of exploitative <laughs> fake science thing? Like, 
Like, don't worry, I'll save you from the neon. Neoff. <laughs> Not neon, neoff. Apply directly to the lungs. <laughs> and the air around us is the start of this whole story. Because the next number here is 1898, the year 1898. That's the year when British chemist William Ramsey discovered the element neon. We have known it as a thing since 1898. So what did he go, like, did he go around with like a butterfly net catching neon in the air and putting it in a tube? I, not really, but kind of. Yeah, the, (laughs) the only reason we know about it is careful analysis of air. Ah. Also, the name neon comes from the Greek word for new, because it was one of many new elements in a row. And the next number here is 1894. A few years earlier, 1894. That is when chemist William Ramsey and another British chemist named John William Strutt, but usually called Lord Rayleigh, because he was he was an actual noble in the British aristocracy, Lord Rayleigh. Right. Uh, they discovered the element argon, another noble gas, 1894. Is that why they call them noble gases? Because nobles couldn't shut up about them? <laughs> Right. The House of Lords was just full of chatter about Krypton <laughs> and Radon. Can you believe this? And huffing it, you know? No, but really, why is it? Why are they called noble gases? Yeah, noble gases are named that because of our concept of nobility. Apparently, because nobility don't work day to day, they don't labor like a wage laborer. It's considered that they do nothing. And noble gases are considered to do nothing chemically. They aren't constantly reacting to other things. The idea is like nobles are just don't react to stuff. You can't provoke a noble and that's why they're called noble gases. And if there's one thing we've learned from old European history, it's that nobles are real chill. (laughs) They don't ever start whole wars for dumb reasons. Yes. Yes. (laughs) They are eating their little finger sandwiches and totally not starting wars on a whim. Uh, so neon uh, is a noble gas. It's inert. And so, like, how did they discover it was in the air? Yeah, that leads us into takeaway number two. The discovery of neon and argon and the other noble gases almost broke the periodic table. The, uh, when these were discovered, the periodic table was a pretty new idea. And they discovered it because they understood the other elements in air, but were confused why there was just something else there. And then that discovery uh, caused a lot of chaos with the adoption and understanding of the periodic table. Interesting. So, like, what, what was the beef? What was wrong? Why were people unable to accept neon as existing? The thing was, it was mainly one guy wouldn't accept it, which is Dmitry Mendeleev a Russian chemist who really theorized and pioneered a periodic table. He he was upset that these guys in Britain were saying there was an entire family of elements that no one understood yet called the noble gases. So this other guy was just saying, like, it only has these numbers of elements and we're done. There's no more elements. He claimed that his system did accommodate some elements with the atomic numbers of these things that they were finding and and would eventually confirm the atomic number of. But he questioned their results. He said, for instance, that argon was probably just a heavy version of nitrogen, Hmm. which was like a pretty plausible theory because there's tons of nitrogen in air. uh, And also, if nitrogen had extra neutrons, that would make it heavier and it could potentially line up with these results they were getting. So he he was wrong, but he had reasonable reasons to argue with these guys. I see. Interesting. And the way the periodic table works and the atomic numbers is these are not just sort of numbers of like, you come first and you come second. Now you're third. It's like (laughs) this is the number of protons. So you could have like some extra neutrons and be sort of a heavy version of an element, but you would have the same number of protons that would sort of distinguish you as, as like, say, a hydrogen or something. Yeah, that's right. And, and an atom can gain or lose electrons and just become an ion of the same element. And these noble gases really don't tend to do those reactions. They have an amount of electrons fitting their protons that is extremely stable. And then on top of that, the noble gases are odorless and colorless 
And so it took a long time until the late, late 1800s for, you know, people to quote unquote discover them. When we talk about discovering an element, it's really people classifying it and writing down information about it. But we're always around the elements all the time. So, okay, so so this guy, Dimitri something or other, was had this idea that, no, these elements don't exist because it's just a heavier version. Did he think, like, basically there weren't, like, that these elements stopped before the noble gases um, and that there were no more beyond that? Yeah, he he had a sketched-out periodic table based on a lot of groups of elements, like a lot of similar minerals, especially he had figured out. But there were definitely big holes in the table in terms of atomic numbers. For example, two. We had not discovered the element helium yet, which is number two on the periodic table. About a quarter of all of the universe is made of helium, but helium is a noble gas. And so this whole family of elements was not discovered yet. And Mendeleev just sort of insisted that the initial discovery of a noble gas, which was argon, he insisted that particular discovery was probably just confusing nitrogen and that these guys were wrong. We, it was like, we all agree there's an 18 out there, argon. But like, uh, I don't think it's this thing you found. I think it's something else. I, I have this memory uh, being in middle school and having a teacher. And I remember asking the teacher, well, why are there only this number of elements and why couldn't there be more? And I think the the actual answer is just the atom will become too unstable. Like you start to have these heavier and heavier elements and some like they're not just like hanging out in the air because they're too heavy. They're too unstable. But her answer was just like, because that's all there is. And oh. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> she's like, that's all there is. I'm like, but why? And she's like, because there's no other ones. I'm like, that <laughs> is not an answer. <laughs> hey, science class is not for asking questions, okay? Get out yeah. of here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool it with the theories and wondering, all right? <laughs> <laughs> Wonder in my science class? Stop it. So, but I'm assuming these other guys who discovered a neon and argon and the other noble gases kind of won out in the end there they were proven correct yeah that's right there's basically two processes that led to the discovery and confirmation of neon and also its friends argon and the other noble gases and oh they're friends yeah <laughs> <laughs> also they get along great can confirm take away uh <laughs> Like we said, like nobles, they just party and have have dinners. Yeah, just sipping tea, getting fed grapes by the lesser elements. Yeah, they, they don't leak dirty stories about each other to the Sun newspaper or anything. It's, <laughs> it's a very calm group. But uh, the, the two processes leading to neon, one is that development of the periodic table. And we don't mean to be too critical of Dmitry Mendeleev. He accomplished a lot. He's a Russian chemist who in 1869 published a paper that claimed that known chemical elements could be organized into a list by their atomic weight, and that also certain characteristics about them recur as you run down the list. Everything from the type of chemical and mineral to the density, you could do a rough prediction based on the other known elements. Uh, and then Mendeleev had a lot of success with this idea because the next element discovered after he published was in 1875, French chemists discovered an element that they called gallium. Wow, gallium. the gallium story that you What's this predicted. Like, I mean, I'm trying to figure out the etymology of gallium because I thought that, I mean, in Italian, galli are, I think, roosters. Roosters are a symbol of France, so it might be connected to mm. that. But the name gallium is from the Latin gallia for Gaul, for France. Like the historical name of France. Mm, so it was French guys naming it after France. It was a whole French thing. Of course they would. Very French of them. Yeah. Très français. <laughs> so they discover gallium. And that is, what is gallium? Gallium is a metallic element. And Mendeleev's table accurately predicted its atomic weight and its similarity to aluminum. It's often liquid in a way that Mendeleev did not predict. It's sort of like mercury that way. Doesn't it kind of melt at room temperature? Like you yeah. have to keep it sort of cold to keep it solid. It's sort of like like water in that way, but it's a metal. Yeah, and so that's a good example of Mendeleev's table being 
very accurate, but also not predicting everything. And, and it sort right. of illustrates how he missed all the noble gases because none of them were discovered. So, so Mendeleev's table that helps you find elements through other comparable elements, it didn't help find an entire missing family. He, you needed Good to start job. finding any of them to get the rest. Good job, Mendeleev. Nice table, <laughs> dork. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 I'm fond of gallium because I, I was always fascinated by the idea that you could have a metal and like hold it in your hand and have it kind of melt. And yeah. metal, of course, can all metals can melt, I believe. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, I, I just love love those kinds of things where it's like, wow, this is it's butter, but it's also metal. So it's butter for robots. <laughs> right for robot bread. Robot toast. For robot bread. That's so cute. I'd love to see a robot spreading some gallium on like some aluminum toast. Yeah, I, I'm imagining them opening a compartment in their middle to toast bread, you know, like a, like a spot toaster. <laughs> and then putting it in their mouth and it goes back into the compartment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they just want to be human so bad, you know. Um, I want to enjoy toast. <laughs> And yeah, and Mendeleev, he, you know, was alive and a person for testing out his periodic table. And he took a lot of public personal pride in how effectively the table predicted elements. And there was a thing with this gallium discovery where its discoverers said, hey, we also checked the density of gallium. It's not that close to what the periodic table predicts. And then Mendeleev publicly challenged them to get a purer sample and try it again. And he was right. They got a pure sample, oh. and it was a lot closer to the density he predicted. Then also, in 1879, scientists discovered scandium. In 1886, scientists discovered germanium. Sc wait, scandium? Yes, named guess. after Scandinavia. Scandinavia, yeah. yeah. Germanium, let me guess, named after Finland. Uh, some Prussians are so mad right now. Oh, geez. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and why, is, why is there no Italium? <laughs> Come on, Italy. I feel like every joke answer would be a mean stereotype about Italians. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> they love their pasta, don't they, folks? <laughs> or they're too generous. They named it after, they named it Germanium just to be nice to their neighbors. Oh, that'd you be, know what I mean? That'd be sweet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in a weird way. But th those also fit Mendeleev's table. And then Mendeleev did like, triumphant announcements that those discoveries were, quote, reinforcers of the periodic law. Like he was just going around Europe being like, look at me. I can call them all. I predict them all. It's amazing. <laughs> Sounds like he's gotten mad with power. A little bit. Yeah. Like, and then a little judge dread of the science nerds. <laughs> and that, so that's, that's one of the two processes leading to neon is this periodic table system. And then the other is that measurements of air are weird. If you don't know about the noble gases. Uh, this British scientist, Lord Rayleigh, he did a series of experiments on air to try to find the exact ratio of nitrogen and oxygen, which were both elements discovered in the 1700s and well-known. But his calculations weren't quite right, and he would later learn it's because there were noble gases in there uh, affecting the ratio. So how do you weigh air? Like, how, do, how were they doing these experiments on air? Do you just sort of like bundle it up with your hands and kind of try to move it on a scale. I assume that there is a method of weighing and measuring air. There's kind of a few, depending on what people are trying to find. And it's it's mega complicated. But the the way to get neon out of air is a, is a system called fractional distillation, which is where you cool it down to a liquid and then boil back out the parts bit by bit because they have different boiling points. And so if you want to pull neon out of air, you need to fractionally distill thousands of pounds of air to get one pound of neon. Rayleigh said, hey, I think there's something else in air. He did further experiments on the density of nitrogen, also got weird results. And then a fellow scientist in London, the Scottish scientist William Ramsey, heard about Lord Rayleigh's results, contacted him, and then they both worked on the theory that there was another heavier gas in air. And as they worked on it in 1894, they found the element argon, which is more plentiful in air than neon. That's why they found argon first. Is it smaller than neon as well? 
And it's bigger. It's atomic number oh, it's 18 neon. versus neon being 10. So there, there's more argon and it's heavier that, that helped them find it first. Well, that's interesting. So they, in 1894, announced argon. Immediately, Mendeleev starts in letters and also publicly criticizing them and saying this is probably heavy nitrogen. One key source for this episode is an amazing book. It's called Periodic Tales, A Cultural History of the Elements from Arsenic to Zinc. It's by science writer Hugh Alder C. Williams. Also, thank you, friend of the show, Daniel Pete, for the tip on that book. But Alder C. Williams calls the letters between Mendeleev and William Ramsey, quote, tetchy. <laughs> and that they, they were not just disagreeing. They were like arguing and kind of mad at each other. Just like, like, check your check your air again, four eyes. Why are you calling me four eyes, four eyes? <laughs> Is that even a Russian expression? And he mails it. And then the guy mails back, yes. Or, or da, I guess in Russian. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, and then kind of ironically to me, Mendeleev is saying, Argon doesn't fit my periodic table. And then Ramsey and another colleague, Morris Travers, prove that it fits by finding the whole rest of the family in a way really guided by periodic table logic. Now that they had this one element established, they could say, okay, what's similar to it? What are the other slots on the table? Based on that, what will we find? And within five years, they found four more chemical elements. They found helium in 1895. And then just in the year 1898, they found neon and krypton and xenon. So when they first found helium was one of the first things they did, like inhale and be like, we have made a wonderful discovery. (laughs) This is going to change the world. Yeah, these guys are the inventors of comedy. It's pretty exciting (laughs) to share that with folks. And Uh, balloons. (laughs) And balloons. (laughs) Yeah. And legitimately, they had a really exciting experience discovering neon. Because when Ramsey and Travers successfully created a sample of pure neon, the way of confirming it was running it through a machine called an atomic spectrometer. The way that device works is it excites whatever's in there with electricity. And so when they tested neon, they got a reddish-orange glow Mm -hmm. where they were like, wow. And, you know, also this leads to the lights. They found some of the most fun elements, it sounds like. So now we get balloons and neon lights. Yeah, and then even the name Krypton, which means hidden, is also just cool. The name Xenon means stranger. These are all Greek-based names. And yeah, and then Ramsey's work both ended those criticisms from Mendeleev and totally fit his table. I think if he just went along with it, it would have been fine. The The next step from Mendeleev was to welcome all the noble gases. They put them in a whole new column on the far right side of the table where they are today. If you want to pull out a periodic table, we're talking about the whole column on the right side. This is sort of like when nerds argue about canon for something like Star Wars, and then they're arguing with like some author of some Star Wars story, and then in the end it turns out that they were right and that guy was like okay you're right that does actually fit canonically in the timeline or something except with <laughs> elements so the more things change the more they stay the same nerds are gonna keep having their weird petty arguments but then in the end come up with a new fan fiction of elements <laughs> yeah truly they, they could just agree the whole time they could have just agreed and it would have been yeah. fine but they didn't. I mean, but then how is, <laughs> what is his name, Medliev, going to go on to his message board yeah. uh, and complain about about these these guys, you know? <laughs> when I learned a little bit more about George R.R. R. Martin, I was really surprised to learn how much he blogs on message boards, especially about the New York Jets football team. You just don't think of a guy like that spending time like that, no, but they do. A- they're human. He's a nerd. He has to be on the message boards. Otherwise, how will people know he's right? Come on, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> I say this as a nerd who needs other people to understand that I'm right on my message boards. Yeah, these guys invented comedy and the internet. It was a lot of <laughs> <laughs> astounding achievements. <laughs> and this also, this argument was sort of the main damaging thing to Mendeleev's reputation. Like in, in his time, he was not totally celebrated after this fight. 
And Hugh Alder C. Williams says it's the main reason Mendeleev failed to win a Nobel Prize, despite multiple nominations, was his... Oh, just because he was a little tetchy? Yeah, that, that he like failed to predict the noble gases and was real public about it and argumentative no. about it. People said, oh, well, he can't be that smart then. You know? No, poor guy. He was just he was just a little bit argumentative. I feel like you shouldn't get your no, Nobel. I mean, I guess it is a Nobel Prize. So if you don't discover the Nobel gases, that's a pretty <laughs> bad look. <laughs> I did. I looked up the announcement speech for William Ramsey getting a Nobel Prize in 1904, and nobody made that joke. I'm really bummed. It seems <laughs> it's right there. Nerds. <laughs> yeah, and Lord Rayleigh also got a Nobel Prize. They, they, they were both really celebrated for this Nobel gases discovery that they co-worked on together because it was huge news worldwide that like, hey, a ton of new elements just appeared on the side of the table. New elements just dropped. Yeah, come on, Lord Rayleigh. Like, you couldn't have stood up there and be like, I'm a noble getting a Nobel for my noble gases. Yeah. Am I right or am I right? Hang on. Am I right or am I right? Hey, helium. <laughs> Balloons, guys. Great discovery. Yeah, and, and then the Swedes running the prizes are just sitting there with a table of scandium being boring. Like, what about scandium? More talk about scandium, right? Why no excitement for scandium? You see it, yes. Let's look at the no, scandium together. No, it's colorless together. and odorous. Odorless. <laughs> it has color and odor. It's a metal, eh? Eh? <laughs> and everybody's just doing helium bits on the, on the yeah. other side of the room. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that that is the origin essentially of neon. It's always existed and been in the air around us. But 1898, an argument is resolved, and the periodic table is. Uh, sort of finished. It, it was a real big step to getting a more complete table by working that out. Nice. Thank you, nerds, for being petty and argumentative. Yeah. <laughs> and they were famous about this. Like, they get Nobel Prizes in 1904, Rayleigh and Ramsey. These gases are big news worldwide. And also, like we said, from Jump, they noticed, hey, you can excite neon with electricity and get a glow. So the next number, back to the numbers, is 1910. Just 12 years later, 1910, that's when French engineer and chemist Georges Claude debuted the first neon sign at an art show in Paris. Did they call it French lights or something, given their track record of <laughs> naming things after France? Galley lights. Am I right? Hey, <laughs> too Latin doesn't work uh no they they pretty much called it neon lights because these were very impressive claude built 40 foot tall tubes of glass containing the gas neon Ooh. and these giant tubes of the gas neon when electrified glowed a bright reddish orange color blew people away i don't think i ever have seen like a 40 foot tall neon tube so that's pretty cool yeah they they basically immediately did this technology well yeah. As soon as they knew what neon was, they said, great, signs for commerce. Let's go. Boom, boom, boom. So yeah. When you say excite the gas with electricity, what are you doing exactly? Like rubbing your socks on a carpet and touching it? Like how is the, what exactly <laughs> are you doing inside the tube? Yeah, th this ties in well with the recent batteries episode because we talked about silly Leiden jars and stuff where people were just trying to hold static electricity in a place. But 1910... That was late enough in technology time that it dovetailed well with electric current. So AC or DC current, you run that into a machine that excites the tube, and there you go. Cool. So it was, it was pretty straightforward given the electrical technology they had also recently put together. Right, where they were shocking dead frogs and saying, look at it go. <laughs> right, that, that was like 100 years before. So they, they, yeah. they were pretty good on electricity. They teamed it up with neon and partied. So now our signs in front of stores weren't frogs, dead frogs getting shocked, but beautiful lights. <laughs> right, like a neon light little can-can instead of a horrific <laughs> frog display doing that. Uh. Spells out like bar and it's just like a bunch of dead frogs. <laughs> and the French were like, we're drinking in the street instead. Forget it. Uh, <laughs> and then they invented sidewalk culture. It all worked out. Yeah, uh. yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so basically immediately they got neon lights going. This guy, George Claude, built a very lucrative business doing it. 
He sold his first sign to a Paris barber shop in 1912. And he also did some patents, trade secrecy, Thomas Edison business sort of stuff to monopolize neon sign technology until the early 1920s and make a huge fortune. You can't monopolize an element and glass tubes. Come on. Yeah, that, that's essentially what everyone else said and gradually, gradually took over also doing that business. But early on, he did some Thomas Edison stuff where right. there are stories of Edison saying, I invented movies and all movies make me money. And people said, <laughs> not for long. We're not going to do that. <laughs> I own the air. I call it Kinda, Thomas, yeah. Thomas air. <laughs> right they were like any of us can pull neon out of air through fractional yeah. distillation we don't need to pay you every time we do that that's silly <laughs> and also very early in this technology they found ways to make different colors which brings Ooh. us into yet another quick takeaway this is full of takeaways takeaway number three neon lights often don't involve the element neon specifically is it other elements? Yeah, it turns out neon, when electrified, specifically creates a bright reddish-orange glow. And so, you know, today there are even LED lights that imitate this whole setup. But mm -hmm. very early in the process, they figured out that other gases and chemicals can get you other colors. Like argon and freon and schmeon. Sh uh, the first one, argon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, apparently argon, especially mixed with a little bit of mercury, it doesn't have to just be gases, mm, but delicious. that gets you a blue glow. Uh, it's very poisonous, obviously, but but don't drink it <laughs> and just look at it, you know? I'm going <laughs> to shotgun that tube of mercury argon like a pixie no. stick. <laughs> it's blue raspberry flavor, right? No, mm. it's not. It's not. My brain will tell me that after it gets... <laughs> <laughs> eaten away by mercury <laughs> but yeah and they they figured out that the noble gas xenon can give you a purplish glow helium can do more of a pinkish red uh, also light makers figured out that if you coat the glass tube in various chemicals such as phosphors that can give you other different color schemes and so the neon lights are called neon because of this historical story where the very first ones were reddish orange tubes of actual neon. Uh, but now that's a catch-all term for all this kind of signage with various chemicals. So when I was five years old and playing that video game and everyone was like, oh, playing video games will never help you in life. It did. It taught me about putting different elements in glass tubes. And now here I am on a podcast. So play video games, kids. It's the best way to learn. Yeah. you uh, Forget those books. It's the game's Age of Empires and Civilization. That's history, baby. <laughs> That's it. Plus, you get to look at the leaders talking all funny and having little voices and stuff teaches you about phalanxes. I don't know. I've never played those games. I, I was always a pacifist. It sounds like you have because the phalanx is way overpowered in Age of Empires 1. It <laughs> needs to be nerfed and everyone knows this. I hear you can use chariot archers with the Scythians, but that's not the point. Uh, <laughs> uh, funnily, speaking of history, that that is the point in history where we get neon lights, the 1910s. And very next number here is 1923, because 1923 is when the United States got its first neon sign. Was it a big cowboy? It was not, but that comes later. Damn. This technology sort of being monopolized by one French guy means that the first American neon sign was made in France and shipped here. It was a neon sign for a Packard car dealership in California, made in 1923. We, we took a lot of things from France. Statue of Liberty, democracy, oh, right. <laughs> French wow. fries, bread. Well, sort of, yeah. The little mustaches. <laughs> the phrase ho ho ho" imported from our wonderful friends across the sea. I do love to say again ho ho ho." Right. Before France, we didn't know how to say that at all. We would we just couldn't. try to be funny and not have a phrase we with a funky accent for it. There was no laughter because we couldn't say ho, ho, ho. But that beginning global spread of neon signs sets up the rise and fall of that as a thing. 
And we've done three whole takeaways and a ton of numbers. So we're going to take a quick break, then get into the birth and death and rebirth of Neon Signage. This week, like every week, Secretly Incredibly Fascinating is brought to you by members of Maximum Fun. Members of Maximum Fun are the reason that this employee-owned network of artist-owned podcasts can exist. That's the only reason. Additionally, this week, we're stretching that support out with extra support from HelloFresh. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit, and there's a reason for that. It's awesome. And the specifics of that awesomeness involve farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients. They deliver right to your doorstep. They save you trips to the grocery store. And you get to enjoy new recipes, maybe new techniques for cooking. I've found HelloFresh to be that perfect balance of plenty of instructions, plenty of support as I figure out a new recipe. And I'm still definitely cooking and putting food onto the table from this wonderful service. Also, a quick stat slash number, HelloFresh, there's a song for it introducing it. The number is seven days because HelloFresh ingredients are picked at peak ripeness and then they go from that farm to your home in less than seven days. So all this produce you're getting, you'll be able to tell, like I was able to tell, that's fresh stuff. That's stuff that you will be glad to be using either right away or even in a few days if you let it wait because it's fresh enough that works for you. So go to HelloFresh.com slash SIFPOD16 and use code SIFPOD16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. That is HelloFresh.com slash SIFPOD16, S-I-F-P-O-D-1-6, and code SIFPOD16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! It's hard to explain what happens on Jordan Jesse Go. So, I had my kids do it. Saying swear words. Saying swear words. Yeah, um, bad jokes. Bad jokes? Bad jokes. Maybe it's like you tell people that you're going to interview them, and then you just stay there like... Like, really quiet and try and creep them out. (laughs) It's just really boring. Because of Jordan, right? Not me. Because of both of you. Oh. Subscribe to Jordan Jesse Go, a comedy show for grown-ups. We're back with more numbers to go, and the next number is 1988. That is the approximate year when a coffee shop in Los Angeles named Gooji's got demolished. Gooji's. Gooji's. And Gooji's. that coffee shop lent its name to an entire architectural style called Gooji, named after it. Gooji. Okay. Yeah, and I'll I'll link examples of it because it's very visual, but also that's the point. It's something that you might just think of as vintage stuff, especially in the Western U.S. Smithsonian Magazine says, quote, it's a style built on exaggeration, on dramatic angles, on plastic and steel and neon and wide-eyed technological optimism. Like an In-N-Out or a Sonic drive through right? Yeah, big time. But it's called Gooji's, though. Yeah, but it's named after this one coffee shop, and the style really took off in the 1940s, 1950s. But then it declined pretty quickly to the point where it wasn't really being built anymore starting in the 1970s, and they demolished that inspirational coffee shop which had these angles and stuff in the 80s. Uh, That location is now a Trader Joe's and a movie theater and a few little shops. Of course it is. Trader Joe's just plastering the world because we love their delicious dips and frozen samosas. And and we're just going to become a Trader Joe's tyranny. Tyranny of the really good frozen samosas. (laughs) 
everyone is sounding off in their heads with their favorite snack there. Mine is the ink and corn. A lot of people like the uh, uh, the dark chocolate peanut butter cups. You know, anyway, it's a great story. Yeah, uh, that's how they that's how they get us. Like they they lure us in with really good tasting snacks, and the next thing you know, they're bulldozing all of our classic buildings and creating new Trader Joe's. That's right. They need to become a sponsor if they want us to stop talking about the demolitions. Uh, so. <laughs> Trader Joe's like they could just if they just give me a box of free for, free Jojo's that's my price to sell out that's it uh, that's all so it takes good. they're so they're good really but good. demolitions focus on the demolitions uh. I'll become like wildly <laughs> wildly pro capitalist if you give me a free box of Jojo's and uh, again I'll, I'll link it because I feel like it's hard to describe but it's huge eye-catching signs that are often cartoony shapes like you know like a giant like, cartoony coffee cup is yeah. a Gucci sign for a coffee shop, you know? You know, it's like the old Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. This all fits together because the one of the big reasons for the decline of Gucci is that it had a lot of neon lighting and in general neon lighting and signage declined, especially starting in the 1970s. Were too many people breaking them open like pixie sticks and huffing the argon? <laughs> too delicious. But... <laughs> We'll get into why with takeaway number four. Since the 1970s, neon signage has been going extinct, and in the process, it's gained a new status as fine art. Huh. So much of it was built for commerce in a non-art way that, partly because of the whole trajectory of modern art, but also because of neon's new rarity, the remaining stuff has become valued as artistic and historic. Yeah, you know, as soon as we start getting like commercially available good holograms, that's going to be everywhere. It's going to be like <laughs> McDonald's, just like a rotating burger. Uh, yeah. You know, it's uh, <laughs> kind of have a gap now between technologies, between neon and the next big thing, I, I guess, to advertise stores. I guess LED screens, like big yeah. LED screens. Like in New York, you have those big LED screens and they're like high definition screens and you see stuff on them. And that's that's the new advertisement. It's exactly right. Yeah. Because the one killer advantage of LED is that it glows in daytime too. Like neon doesn't really look glowy in daytime. It just looks like tubes. And so... Yeah. What's wrong with a good tube? We're essentially tubes with arms and legs. That's right. The internet is a series of tubes. I'm pro tube. Everything. Honestly, Existence is tubes. Name a thing that's not a tube. Go on. Try it. <laughs> we start having delay of arguments about things not being tubes, and then we're shamed yeah. by... Donut, short tube. Square, square tube. <laughs> that's right. Brick, rectangle tube. We're right. Uh... <laughs> Heavy tube. Yeah. <laughs> There's a few sources here for the decline of neon. It's stuff from National Geographic and The Atlantic and The Guardian. The general story is that in the 1970s, there's a little bit of a death spiral for neon signage. Like It's a vicious circle of neon gets built up in the 1920s to the 1950s. When it needed repair or replacement, it was seen as less of a new and modern thing, seen as not quite worth it. According to J. Eric Linksweiler, president of the board at the Los Angeles Museum of Neon Art, neon signage was seen as, quote, grandpa's technology as early as the 1960s. So we, people yeah. let neon fall apart. Then as neon fell apart, its reputation became kind of associated with oldness and disrepair, which starts a vicious circle. Like people let neon fall apart, which makes them like neon less, which means they let neon fall apart more, which means they like it even less. And, and from there, it kind of collapses. Right. And even if you are sort of a staunch pro neon person, I'm sure at that point, it's really hard to find like a neon repairman because they don't get business elsewhere. So yeah. then you can only find the very rare neon artisans out there. And if you have like a little bar, you're not going to be able to afford a neon artisan and so i'm guessing now it's only something like the super wealthy can have is neon that's exactly right yeah the very specific technical profession of a neon craftsman somebody who makes and repairs neon lights less work so less jobs so less work so less jobs and on and on and the guardian interviewed wu chi kai in the city of hong kong he's described as one of the last neon light craftsmen in hong kong 
In 2018, he said his workshop revenue had dropped 80% over the last 25 years and that he was going to need to close soon. The small scale Mm. stuff that was left to do wasn't going to support it. No, that's that's really sad. I I don't know why. I mean, yeah, I I, it's not like I love neon so much, but I do kind of. I, I like that people are skilled at cool things, like when someone has an art form and they're good at it and they make a cool thing. You know, I want them to be able to keep doing that, especially if it's, you know, I'm hoping you're not about to tell me that like neon signs kill baby dolphins or something because, <laughs> you know. In a, in a roundabout way, that was a misconception that hurt neon signage as well. In the mm. 1970s, people only somewhat correctly decided neon signs are energy inefficient and bad for the environment. It turns out they do take some energy, but the efficiency of LED is a little overstated. A lot of times LED gets described by the energy rating when it's super dim, like the dimmest setting where it's turned on. And if you actually use it at the brightness people use it, it's not that much more efficient than neon. For me, it's not a real LED light unless I can kind of feel my eyeballs warming up. (laughs) Right. If I'm able to sleep that night, it wasn't turned on. You know what I mean? Come on. If (laughs) If it has not destroyed my melatonin production entirely and made me a creature of the day and night, then it's not. Then that's not real LED light. But it, it, this joke, it, it kind of also became a neon criticism, the, the light pollution. The, the super joke version is the Seinfeld episode where the Kenny Rogers Roasters sign turns Kramer's whole apartment red and, and <laughs> no one can sleep in there. But, but like energy and light pollution became a criticism of neon. And in the 1970s, when there was an energy crisis, some cities like San Diego and Vancouver banned neon. Like either huh. the construction of it or or required it to start to be taken down. I mean, I'm all for uh, reducing light pollution, but I feel like we still have it, even though we got rid of neon. It's still a problem. And then, like, apparently those cities did rescind those bans, but the damage was done. Like this overall spiral of neon starting to go away, it especially hit hard in Hong Kong. Apparently, back in the 1900s, when Hong Kong was a British colony and capitalist, neon filled the city in the 1950s. It was a big eye-catcher for, you know, the high-density pedestrian places in Hong Kong. The Guardian interviewed Brian Kwok, who's an assistant professor of the School of Design at Hong Kong Polytechnic University. He says neon is, quote, an endangered species in the city. Uh, apparently, about 90% of the main neon lights in Hong Kong have been taken down in the last 20 years, partly because of new laws in 2011 requiring neon signs to be replaced with smaller versions or removed completely. And so mm. the city's been taking down thousands of neon lights, you know, for better or worse. Like, maybe there's less light pollution, maybe it's better for energy, but at some point you're removing some history as well. Yeah, it seems kind of... I don't know. I, I I am in favor of reducing light pollution. I think that's good. But I feel like I don't know if getting rid of neon is going to do it right. Like there's still a ton of light pollution. It seems like just basically saying like, hey, turn your lights off after 11 people, you know, would be better. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm not I'm not a light scientist or a politician. I can be if you want me to, though. Hey, because that's politics, baby. You just tape an ad where you're wearing a flannel shirt on a farm because it's somehow American. And then you're looking at the teleprompter like, okay, what do I think about neon? What do people want? (laughs) It's... They're trying to take our neon. Uh, And then just like cocking a neon gun. (laughs) (laughs) The very end of the ad is you drinking a little bit of it. Like, I yeah, look good. Like... I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> there, I had found some sources just lyrically describing the 1900s as the neon century. Like, yeah, there, there it was this whole time period of people putting it up. But for this nesting set of reasons, people didn't want to spend the money or hire the people to keep it going. It's pretty, though. I mean, I think like in people's concept of sort of a cyberpunk future is always full of neon lights and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I think that there's a real, real nostalgia for these neon lights. Yeah. And, and oddly, it's especially a dystopian future thing. 
because it's both nostalgic and also people have real life experiences of seeing run down neon. And mm -hmm. so in media like Blade Runner, which came out in 1982, that was a time of real life neon sign decay. And so it made sense as a stylish lighting for this uh, horrible version of L.A. in the near future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is sort of a Hollywood trope, right? Sort of the buzzing neon light at like some gas station in the middle of nowhere. And then you go there and then you get like axe murdered by cannibals or something. <laughs> yeah funny enough speaking of the middle of nowhere there's one last last takeaway for the main show here. i thought you were gonna say speaking of cannibals oh <laughs> hard turn podcast is taking a hard turn yeah last last takeaway for this loaded main show takeaway number five las vegas nevada had neon signs before it officially had gambling so you come for the neon and you stay for the losing your money. Yeah, like when Las Vegas was truly tiny and had only really just been incorporated the decade before they installed their first neon signage. And it's truly one of the most neon cities in the world. Yeah, I mean, like that kind of tracks with sort of our cultural conception of it, this glowing little oasis in the middle of the desert. Like we said, the first U.S. neon signage was 1923. Las Vegas put up its first neon sign in 1929. They put it up at a business called the Oasis Cafe, then more neon at the Las Vegas Club in 1930. Maybe there was gambling going on, but legally Nevada didn't repeal their statewide gambling ban till 1931. And so then casinos sprout up and those build neon too. But Las Vegas is such a neon city that when it only had a population of about 5,000 people, they were putting up neon signage that was pretty rare outside of New York City and Paris at the time. That Yeah, that's so interesting. Like, it feels that Las Vegas has always had this culture of being over the top and bright and, and festive. And uh, I, I, I'm personally not like a huge fan of casinos. Just it feels depressing in there I don't know but like I, I I remember when I went to Las Vegas I was a little disappointed because I kind of had this concept of what it would look like with sort of neon lights and like the old gambling machines where you'd like pull the handle and now it's just sort of all screens all like LED screens and stuff and to me that's just sort of I don't know it's a little depressing I had the same experience with video slots yeah movies told me it's cooler i guess but yeah people love them like it, i went for my friend's like bachelor party and he mainly wanted to go to the esports arena we didn't do anything crazy but he also <laughs> wanted to play one specific video slot and i didn't know they existed really i was like oh okay cool it's just a screen great yeah it's just like a giant iphone game that yeah <laughs> takes your money yeah. And it just it's like you push a button. There's a bunch of like random animations that happen on the screen, like cats doing the can can. And then they're like, oops, you lost your money. Bye. Meow, meow, meow. And then it's yeah. like, oh, OK, <laughs> the the old style gambling machines, even though I mean, those were also highly addictive. But I, I think now just like the automation of everything where someone can literally just kind of sit in front of a screen and almost do nothing for hours on end. It's just, I mean, I feel like I just kind of described myself playing uh, Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. But in that case, I'm saving the princess. So I'm okay. Yeah. And it's 60 bucks one time. And then you get to just play there it forever. There you go. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and the past and present of slots, it's kind of this neon thing, too, and it all depended on electricity. If people have heard the past concrete show and its bonus show about the Hoover Dam, the thing that really built Vegas was in the 1930s, the Hoover Dam is being constructed nearby. So then there's both human workers looking for entertainment and a huge electricity source to turn on the gaming machines and the neon lights, and you get this neon city out in the desert. That's amazing. And probably the most representative symbol of that neon today is a cowboy sign. His name there is There we go. His name is Vegas Vic. He was built in 1951. I knew there was a cowboy guy and he's neon. 
Yeah. He's like kind of got this lackadaisical look about him. Very cowboy casual. He does. He's he's on Fremont Street and he is sort of independent of specific casinos now. He's owned by a company called Schiff Enterprises. But the thing is, Vegas has so much neon and is such a neon city that a lot of it is now the equivalent of historically marked. And this is kind of a breaking story. In April 2023, the city of Las Vegas threatened to fine the owners of Vegas Vic for turning him off. They were not running the sign, and they said that by law, in order to still be up, Vegas Vic needed to be turned on from an hour before dusk to an hour after dawn. In order to be historic neon in Vegas, you need to be turned on at nighttime. So this is like opposite town. Like other cities are saying, take down your neon, turn off your neon. But here they're saying, keep on your neon all night or we're going to put you in Vegas jail. Yeah, basically. A link reports from KVVU new, local news Las Vegas because Schiff Enterprises in May of 2023 said, "Okay, we'll turn it on," and they found out they found out <laughs> only about a quarter of the sign worked, and they've now oh, hired no. a company in Utah to refurbish, replace, redo the tubes. According to that company, quote, "The good news is, at 72 years of age, the sign is absolutely repairable." All right, so Vegas Vix still. You know, in good shape. Uh, He just needs some more tubes, just like humans. Like you get to a certain age and it's like, you're you're all right. We just need to insert some new tubes in you. Yeah. And Vic is also one of the more freestanding forms of historic neon now. The city of Vegas also spent a couple million dollars over the last few years restoring a set of historic hotel and motel neon signs. And they tried to do a corridor of those leading to the City of Las Vegas Museum of Neon. Hmm. And Vegas, Los Angeles, Cincinnati, and Philadelphia are a few of the cities in the U.S. with museums of neon now. It's it's sort of sort of like how pop art discovered that you could put up pictures of commercial things like Campbell's soup cans and that's art. Neon has progressed to become art now by being historic and vintage commercial stuff. It's kind of impossible to separate our nostalgia or our art from commercial things like, you know, with the Campbell's soup or with the neon. Like, yeah, these are all very commercial things, but our our entire culture is just so wrapped up in commerciality, especially, you know, like around the time that neon was, you know, thriving. So, yeah, I mean, of course, we're going to be nostalgic for that and kind of see that now as as a form of art. Totally. Like even Vegas Vic specifically exists to trick you into using slot machines, but I like him a lot anyway. (laughs) Yeah. I don't really like slot machines at all. And I like Vic a whole bunch. Yeah, no, I feel similarly. I feel a little bit Stockholm syndrome because, you know, generally I (laughs) I don't like how commercialized things have been. I felt really icky being in Las Vegas, but then I also really like I get good vibes from seeing this neon cowboy. So I feel like that kind of thing right like the classic vegas the old like i really wanted to play like an old slot machine the one where you pulled the thingy and you get the yeah cherries and so on and so there's this big nostalgia grip on me i think that i still feel regardless of you know being a little more (laughs) askance at the actual uh they're all like everything feels like it is a commercial interaction and that's it's a little depressing but i'm also a sucker for neon cowboys yeah, he looks so happy up there. And He's cool. We all like the science, I think. It's just fun. It's chemicals and gases, and a lot of it's falling apart, but a lot of it's getting saved because we just like it. <laughs> Folks, that's the main episode for this week. Welcome to the outro with fun features for you, such as help remembering this episode with a run back through the big takeaways. Takeaway number one, you are breathing in neon right now. Takeaway number two, the discovery of neon and argon and the other noble gases almost broke the periodic table. Takeaway number three, neon lights often do not involve the element neon. 
Takeaway number four, since the 1970s, neon signage has been going extinct, and in the process, it's gained a new status as fine art. And takeaway number five, Las Vegas, Nevada had neon signs before it officially had gambling. Those are the takeaways. Also, I said that's the main episode because there is more secretly incredibly fascinating stuff available to you right now. If you support this show at MaximumFun.org, members get a bonus show every week where we explore one obviously incredibly fascinating story related to the main episode. This week's bonus topic is Soviet neon and post-Soviet neon. Visit SIFpod.fun for that bonus show, for a library of more than 12 dozen other secretly incredibly fascinating bonus shows, and a catalog of all sorts of Max Fun bonus shows. It's special audio. It's just for members. Thank you for being somebody who backs this podcast operation. Additional fun things? Check out our research sources on this episode's page at MaximumFun.org. Key sources this week include the British Royal Society of Chemistry, the American Physical Society, and Ohio State University, also an amazing book called Periodic Tales, A Cultural History of the Elements from Arsenic to Zinc, that is by science writer Hugh Alder C. Williams. That page also features resources such as native-land.ca. I'm using those to acknowledge that I recorded this on the traditional land of the Canarsi and Lenape peoples. Also, Katie taped this in the country of Italy. Also, we just had a lot of Las Vegas stories. That city is built on the traditional lands of the Newe Sogobia people and the Nuwuvi people and the Chemewevi people. For example, visit chemawevi.org, which will have links for information about those folks doing language classes, garden walks, and other community events. They also just did a Nuwuvi Days celebration, June 2nd and 3rd. So, very much going on, very much still a thing. That kind of acknowledgement feels worth doing on each episode. And hey, join the free SIF Discord, where we're sharing stories and resources about Native people and life. There's a link in this episode's description to join the Discord. We're also talking about this episode right here on the Discord. And hey, would you like a tip on another episode? Because each week I'm finding you something randomly incredibly fascinating by running all the past episode numbers through a random number generator. This week's pick is episode 88. Episode 88 is about the topic of license plates. Fun fact, the U.S. state license plates in Delaware count up from a plate with just the number one on it, and then two and three and so on, and that number one plate is reserved for the car of Delaware's governor. So I recommend that episode. I also recommend my co-host Katie Golden's weekly podcast, Creature Feature, about animals and science and more. Our theme music is Unbroken Unshaven by the Budos Band. Our show logo is by artist Burton Durand. Special thanks to Chris Souza for audio mastering on this episode. Extra, extra special thanks go to our members. And thank you to all our listeners. I'm thrilled to say we will be back next week with more Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. So how about that? Talk to you then. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.